Um, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Um, I'm Michael Sansbury, and uh, Frank, just get here when you can. Don't worry about it. Um, I uh, <laughs> this summer we're uh, Gil and Ron Flowers and I are teaching a series on the parables. And I would say we're probably halfway through, maybe. And this is my second class. Um, as you saw in the in the leaflet this morning, it said part two, uh, but you didn't really need to be here for part one. So I'll just tell you all about that. Um, but first, I, and I, as I did the last time, I wanted to start off with a confession. And last time I told, for those of you who are here, they're probably I don't, I don't know who all was here, but. I said, you know, usually I write out detailed notes and then give the, the class, and I didn't do that last time. I just had a sheet of kind of topics to talk about. And so I did the class, and afterwards my wife says, that was the best class you've ever done. Right? So, so now I have the weight of that on my shoulders, the expectations, and fortunately she's not here yet, so um, you know, I don't have her actually looking at me and, and putting the judgment about whether this class is better than the last class. But I did read an article about uh, lectures, and there apparently have been studies done, and they tested subjects. They gave a, had one person who was a very dynamic lecturer, you know, very funny, give a lecture, and they had another person who was very boring and kind of monotone in their lecture, and they measured the recall of the participants who observed each lecture, and it turned out there, there actually wasn't much difference at all. So whether you see a good lecture or a boring lecture, you're, about, you're gonna recall the same amount of material. Uh, and it turns out that the amount of material that you recall is basically none, so. <laughs> um, I hope you, so that, that, I guess there's some freedom in that. Uh, all right, so let's, um, let's start with the prayer. Uh, the Lord be with you. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, you say that whenever two or three are gathered together, you'll be in the midst of them. Please be in the midst of us, even though there are 15 to 20 of us. Uh, be with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, at the end of the last class, for those of you who were here, I, I played a clip from a uh, stand-up comedy routine of Louis C.K., and Gil said I could have two curse words per class. And uh, so I, I burned them both up in that, uh, that presentation. Um, but the reason I, I didn't have much chance, we kind of ran out of time at the end. Uh, but the reason I, I like Louis C.K., and, and we'll have another clip of him at the end of the class, I like to, to end with that, because at least you'll see something entertaining uh, that you can kind of take with you. And you'll be like, oh, we really laughed a lot, because we saw that two-minute clip. So I, I'll show you another one at the end. But the reason I like him uh, is, is because he speaks with, um, well, he, for an, and I'll play you a, a clip in a moment that I think will explain this a little bit better, but he, he is very much, in that particular clip, he talked about parenthood and how boring it is. And um, in, in the particular context there was in the context of Clifford the Big Red Dog, which is, you know, he has a, a good two-minute routine on how boring and terrible the Clifford the Big Red Dog stories are. But because you're parents, you know, these are the sacrifices you make for your kids. Uh, what I like about Louis is that he, he does a good job of, of calling the thing like it is. You know, he really describes things that, that in a way that, I mean, they're things that you don't necessarily want to admit to yourself. 
he kind of puts them out there and explains them, and it, and it makes you, it, it lets you laugh about things that you wouldn't necessarily admit to yourself. So this week, um, I think that they're, you know, the parables are basically Jesus kind of, to me, I kind of look at them kind of as a stand-up comedy routine. Um, he kind of stands up and tell these, tells these stories, and, I, and, you know, they're not always very funny, and they're actually not usually very funny. But they do uh, kind of upset your expectations about what you think that, that uh, uh, is going to happen in these various stories. He tells a story, you think it's going to go one way, it goes another way, or it, it offends you in a particular way because he, he tells you to do something that, or, or says that heaven is a certain way like you wouldn't expect it to be. Um, and I, I, I figured out why it's not very funny when you read them. It's because when you try to tell someone else's joke, or you, you've heard a joke or, or seen something that's very funny, most people, when you try to tell that joke to somebody else, it's a terrible joke, right? It's not funny anymore. So he's like, oh, yeah, you said this hilarious thing about, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, okay, where's the, where's the punchline? Or I saw this thing, this guy did this or that. And you're like, okay, well, I guess you really, you know, you, you have that, oh, I guess you had to be there kind of thing. And I think that's probably the way it was when, when the disciple or the apostles set out to write down these parables. They sort of wrote them down, and I think people read them and were like, well, that's not really funny at all. What, what's that mean? It, it doesn't really make any sense the way it's written down. But I think that's, that may be the reason. You, maybe you had to be there to kind of see it. All right, so, um, so to go a bit further into the stand-up comedy aspect, there was actually a clip, and I'm stealing this. It was on the Mockingbird blog this week. Uh, but it's a clip of, of Stephen Fry, who's a British uh, actor and comedian, talking about the difference between American and British comedy, which I think really captures uh, the idea, as I was saying about Louis C.K., of, of why um, of why I think his his comedy is is particularly good. Um, but we'll play this, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about this in the context of our parable for today, which is the uh, shrewd manager. We have time for one more question, uh, which will come from the gentleman there. Uh, you talk about the uh, sense of humor, the American sense of humor, and we haven't really touched so much the British sense of humor, but do you think they differ hugely? And if so, what accounts for that difference? It's a really good point. I think, um, it, I mean, it strikes at the heart of what is American optimism. Is It's a really important thing. Not really optimism, but a, um, a refusal to see oneself in a bad light or, you know, I won't talk about this for far too long, but, but the, if you go to an American bookshop, by far the biggest section is self-help and improvement. The, you know, the idea that, that life is refinable and improvable and that you can learn a technique for anything, whether it's lovemaking, being a, a businessman, a marriage, cooking, losing weight, uh, whatever it is, there's, a, there's an NLP way of doing it, there's an Anthony Robbins way of doing it, there's a things they didn't teach you at Harvard way of doing it. There's an unbelievable sense that life is improvable, that you can be lectured at, or indeed given a sermon at, you know, that that's, it's the Protestant base of America, that, that things are done by text and by works, as opposed to by submission and by, you know, a doctrine in the way that the higher church, you know, European, you know, rump, uh, we still believe. And 
and there is a sense of original sin in Europe, and this is a bizarre theory that I won't push to its limit, but when it comes to comedy, it's satisfactorily, I think, obvious that the American comic hero is a wisecracker who is above his material and who is above the idiots around him. And the British comic, put it this way, the American comic hero, like John Belushi or someone like that, is the, you know that scene in uh, Animal House with a, there's a fellow playing folk music on a guitar and John Belushi picks up the guitar and destroys it and the cinema just smashes it and then waggles his eyebrows at the camera. Much funnier when you saw it. Yeah. Well, a British comedian would want to play the folk singer. We want to play the failure. All the great British comic heroes are are people who want life to be better and on whom life craps from a terrible height and whose sense of dignity is constantly compromised by the world letting them down. They want to wear a tie. They're not quite smart enough to wear an old school tie because they're kind of lower middle class. They are Arthur Lowe in, in Dad's Army. They are Anthony Aloysius Hancock. They are Basil Fawlty. They are Del Boy. They are Blackadder. They're not quite the upper echelons, and they're trying to be decent and right. Everything tries to be proper. They're even David Brent from the office. And their lack of dignity is embarrassing. They are a failure. They're an utter failure. They're brought up to expect empire and respect and decency and being able to wear a blazer in public, and everyone around them just goes... <laughs> Whereas the American hero is the smart talkies, Jim Carrey and Ben Stiller and you know, whoever he just goes all the way back, they can wisecrack their way, way out of any situation. They Alright, so you get the idea. Um, so I think in this I think actually Andrew um, made reference to the self-help. He probably stole it from the Mockingbird blog today as well in his sermon about <laughs> about the um, about the, the day planner, and I think his, his one laugh line, especially about the um, uh, the Facebook post where everyone kind of tries to make themselves seem like everything is perfect in their life, uh, you know, I think is, is subverted by this Stephen Fry idea of most people want to play, or the the British people want to play the failure for, for laughs, and and we Americans don't kind of want to let our, our masks down. Uh, all right, so that kind of brings us to the to what I talked about last time, which was the prodigal son. Um, the parable of the prodigal son that we spoke about last time, everyone knows it, so I don't I don't think I need to go through it again. But at the end of it, what, I think what I attempted to do was kind of bring back some of the offensiveness of the parable that we all know so well. And so I showed a clip of of Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, Confessing that he is now a Christian from in his interview with Stone Phillips, and I think it I think it kind of did the job. I think we all kind of had a very visceral reaction to the idea that Jeffrey Dahmer would be hiding behind the cross in that sense. But and so what I what I what I want to do again today is is and I think the the parable we'll talk about is a little easier to relate to because it, it deals with um, something that we still still deal with today, which is the idea of indebtedness to other people. Uh, but for the prodigal son, and I think that, that that story in particular is one of the kind of cornerstone stories that 
um, it, it really says something that's resonated or has a, has a theme that, that is repeated over and over in the Bible, which is this idea of, of, of humans, of people running away from God and God continuing to pursue and continuing to pursue people who don't deserve it and, and, and doing what I call it being, being wasteful. I mean, that's the kind of theme I want to bring in. He's, he wastes his goodness and his grace on people who are utterly undeserving of it. So you see that not only in the prodigal son, but you also see it in the story I like the best, one of, the, one of my favorite stories from the Bible, the story of Doubting Thomas. So does anyone, anyone recall what that? I'm sure everyone remembers that story. But so, so, so Jesus, this is after Jesus is crucified. Thomas is one of the disciples. He's kind of with Jesus. He sees all these miracles. He, see, he sees Jesus raise people from the dead. He sees him cure people of blindness. And so Jesus ends up getting crucified. He sees that. And then when Jesus is resurrected, he appears to all the disciples except Thomas. And they all go to Thomas and say, hey, you know, Jesus is back. He's as good as new. And, and Thomas, even though he's seen all these miracles that Jesus has performed, what does he say? Right. I don't buy it, right? It's like, that, that can't happen. And then I need to see it. I need, I need to be able to put my hands. I need to be able to touch it and feel it to believe it, regardless of what I've seen. And so instead of Jesus saying, that's fine, Thomas. You can enjoy your time in hell. What does Jesus do? Anyone remember? Right. He comes, he comes to Thomas and he says, have at it, right? Do what you need to do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do what it takes to bring you back into the fold. And so that's that's the story. It's a, it's kind of a live example of this story of the lost sheep or the prodigal son of Jesus reaching out like the father and the prodigal son and doing what it takes to bring the son into the fold, whether he's deserving of it or not. It's also a story um, that you see in in the book of Jonah. Uh, which is is hard. Tully and Chavidian actually wrote a, a long book on the story of Jonah, which was good because I think if you, especially if you have children, you kind of forget what the story of Jonah is about. Kind of like if you, you do with with the story of Noah's Ark, um, which is always striking with children because it's like, hey, Noah's Ark, you know, we have all these animals, you know, look two by two. You have the little wooden thing or the playset, and you know, oh, we'll put the animals on the boat, and you always forget about, oh yeah. God also flooded the entire world and killed everybody else. So, but we'll kind of keep that hidden. Look how cute the animals are. And, and Jonah is a similar way. It's like, oh yay, big fish ate Jonah. Um, but so, but it, the story of Jonah is the same idea of, of Jonah continually running away. It starts with God saying, Jonah, go to Nineveh, and Jonah saying, all right, that sounds pretty bad. I'm going to go to Tarshish and run away from this. And so that's why Jonah, so Jonah's on the boat. God comes down and says, you know, you shouldn't be on the boat, Jonah. The people on the boat throw him into the ocean. Uh, Jonah, I guess, preferring death to actually going and doing what God tells him to do. And he gets scooped up by a fish. Instead of the fish eating Jonah, killing him, Jonah, you know, going to hell, the fish keeps Jonah alive, spits him back out. And finally, Jonah gets the message. But even after Jonah gets the message, he goes to Nineveh, preaches. Nineveh's converted. And what does Jonah say after that? He's yeah, he's ticked, of course. <laughs> he's, uh, he's, and as he should he be. <laughs> right. 
Um, so Nineveh was converted. Jonah's mad, uh, even though Jonah himself was the, was was saved by God. Jonah gets mad that someone else had the benefit of this of of salvation uh, in God's kind of unendurable grace. So these are so this idea of the prodigal son, this idea of God being wasteful, of God pursuing people who are unworthy, is is very much repeated throughout the Bible. And that's what makes this the parable of the unjust steward uh, uh, difficult to understand, I think. And in fact, Robert Capon, who uh, Gil and Ron have both given shouts out to um, in his book about the parable of Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment, calls the unjust steward the hardest parable. So let's see what we can do with it. Um, all right, so first, the, the parable has two names. Some places call it the unjust steward, and some places call it the shrewd manager, which seems a very strange, you know, injustice and shrewdness kind of going together. But let's let's read it and then maybe try to explore that a little bit. It's funny, I, I this is from Bible Gateway, and I. I Gil has the fancy kind of PowerPoint with the with the verse on it. So I pulled this up this morning. It has beautiful guidance about publishing your own Christian book. So if anyone <laughs> needs that link, let me know. All right, so the parable of the shrewd manager. <clears throat> All right, so this is Luke 16.1, and I think that, I, um, well, I'm, I'm sure of this, that the, the, the story of the prodigal son from Luke is in chapter 15. So this immediately follows... The, um, the prodigal son and the, the lost coin and the lost sheep um, parables. And so it's, at the, it's, it's really at the same dinner that Jesus, where Jesus is, is talking to the Pharisees and the tax collectors. Uh, and Jesus' disciples are, of course, there. So it says, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master has taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of oil, of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take, away, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. <coughs> I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, or God and mammon, as it is in other places. 
All right, so that's the parable of the of the shrewd manager. Um, so let's start with the with the title. Does anyone? Why would it the title of the shrewd manager be an appropriate title? Any thoughts on that? Well, let's start with appropriate first. He was thinking on his feet. I mean, he was thinking, okay, I've got to, I'm not just going to sit and let something happen to me. I'm going to figure out what I should do right. to take care of myself. Right. So he's about, to be, he's about to be fired, right, by his manager. And he thinks, what can I do to, to kind of fix things? And so, um, and so what, he's, he's a man of action, right? And so what does he do? Well, he, yeah, but he, he, he gets them indebted to him by doing what? By, by really forgiving part of their debt. Right. Um, even though it really wasn't his place to do so. Right. It's not his debt, right? Yeah. It's, it's the master's debt. He forgives it. And then, and so if, if, if you were the master and you had a servant who was just writing off your debt to people, how would you feel about that? <laughs> I would not commit that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, okay. All right. So that's that's a good point, right? So, so there are certain so um, so debt is obviously money that someone owes to you, right? And you, and it's usually something they have a legal obligation to pay back to you. So, um, so if if someone doesn't pay it back, then ordinarily you can take steps to kind of collect the debt from the person, right? But there are some debts that are uncollectible, right? So certain people, um, you know, you've loaned them a lot of money, you've made a bad loan to somebody who, who just can't pay the money back. And so uh, sometimes you're better off saying, I'll take less money on the debt, right? Um, And so, and I think in, in, in our times, I think we're, we're very apt to think that because I think we have a, have a, um, a good solid financial system that where we have a, a currency and, and, all, and things like that. But in the ancient world, um, where you were dealing with more of a, of a barter economy, it was a bit different, right? Uh, uh, because you had, you know, you, you would trade someone some goods for something else, um, and the you know sometimes it, say you traded uh, olive oil for wheat, right? So wheat comes in at a different time of year than you would have olive oil. So you say, okay, well, I'll give you the olive oil now if you'll give me the wheat later, or or something, or I'll give you you know oranges now if you'll give me apples in the winter. And so you have this. So in order for that for an economy like that to function. You have to have the ability or to, to do something to the other person so they'll, they'll pay you back. Um, and in the ancient world, it, those were very serious obligations. And I think even, even in the kind of the pre-modern world, but you have the, the transitional world of, say, of, uh, of, of the Merchant of Venice. Have you all read that? Um, so in, in the Merchant of Venice, uh, the Merchant of Venice loans some money to, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, <laughs> well, Shylock's the, the merchant. Uh, Antonio's the 
Okay, Antonio, yeah. And, you're right, Antonio borrows the money from Shylock. And Shylock takes a security, what? Pound of flesh, right? And they're in Venice, and the reason Venice was a great trading society was because in Venice they actually enforced people's debts always. So you could you could rest assured if I have a claim in Venice, I'm going to be able to collect that debt come hell or high water. And so Shylock has the has the um, the pound of flesh. Uh, the debt ends up not being repaid, so Shylock wants to wants to take the, the pound of flesh. And that's kind of how it was in the in, in the ancient world. It's if you can't pay your debt back. I get you. I own your family. I own, you know, you become a, a servant to me, which is the one of the worst things you could be in the ancient world. And so debt was a very serious thing. It's not like you could just declare bankruptcy like you can now and get on, get along with your life. Uh, but there was this idea of, of jubilee, which was every seven years or so, um, especially in, in, in uh, well, let me take a step back. The problem with the barter economy from a government standpoint is, is what? How do you usually fund your government? Taxes. taxes. And so if you have a barter economy, it becomes difficult to do that because no one has any money to pay their taxes. So all your t you can take goods or whatever, but you can't store them. It creates all kinds of problems. And so it's in your, it's in your advantage of your government to kind of create a, a, a taxable, um, you know, a, a, a taxable currency where you can collect taxes from people. Uh, and so what would happen is, you know, you, you try to introduce money into a barter economy, people would get in trouble. They would not be able to, you know, market prices would, would fluctuate or whatever, and they wouldn't be able to pay their taxes. So this idea of jubilee came in, where the government every seven years or so, or, or when it was necessary, would say, you're forgiven. All your debt, your taxes are forgiven. We'll start over. Uh, so this idea of forgiving debts, obviously, is, is not a new one. Um, but the shrewdness comes in where uh, one, idea, one possibility for the shrewdness here is that, is that if it's a bad debt, if it's an uncollectible debt, he's basically going to these people and saying, okay, I'll take, uh, you know, half of the, the currency, I'll take half of what you owe me or whatever, and we'll just write this off. I don't have to pursue you. Um, that idea, I think, is, is fairly common among business people who deal with bad debts a lot. But there are certain people out there who, whenever a debt is owed, um, feel like no matter what, I'm going to collect this thing. And I have my mother is a perfect example of this. Uh, you know, if she, if someone, if she calls a, if a company um, overcharges her five dollars or whatever, and she needs to make a hundred phone calls to get that five dollars back, she's going to make that, all those phone calls. She's not going to let it go no matter what. Um, and those are actually, as a lawyer, those are actually the, the clients that you want to have, right, when you're a lawyer. You want the clients who are like, no matter what, not a penny for tribute, I'm going to collect that debt, and I'm going to pay you by the hour to pursue it, even though I'm going to spend ten times as much money trying to get it as it, as it actually is worth to me. And you're like, okay, that's great. I'm totally, I'm totally behind that. Um, well, here, here he writes off the debt. It doesn't. We don't really know if it's a bad debt or not, other than the fact that the people aren't paying it. And it's also not clear from the text whether he actually succeeds in collecting um, what these people owe him, even if he discounted their bill. He just says, write down your bill. So you owe me 900 gallons of olive oil, which it says, according to the footnote, is... 3,000 liters of olive oil. 
and the thousand bushels of wheat is 30 tons of wheat, which seems like a lot. But it doesn't say he actually succeeds and, okay, I gave you the discount, now, I, now, I, now I've actually collected the money. Um, so it's not clear that that, that, that happens. Um, but if it, assuming that he, he was able to, to collect some of this debt, that would be shrewd. Uh, but w why would it be called possibly the unjust steward? Right, which is dishonest, right? The owner wouldn't like it for his own benefit. For his own benefit. Um, and what? And <laughs> so this is why um, I think it's the hardest parable because after, all right, we go through the story here, and at the end, the master, for whatever reason, commends the the dishonest manager for acting shrewdly. So according to the master then what can we say about the master? How does he feel about the dishonesty of the, of the steward? If he admires dishonesty, then he's dishonest himself. <laughs> well, okay. So he admires, so he, uh, he's commending the, um, the dishonest manager for being dishonest, so that makes him dishonest himself, yeah, okay. So maybe the so maybe the olive oil was more valuable than it used to be when he yeah. traded for it, and so he's collecting it. Yeah. So he's kind of he's giving him a discount, but he's based you know, on what, what the price would be then. Right, but everyone's ended up fairly uh, at the end of it. All right. Well, he said. Well, he says he. I, I get. I'm assuming so because he says he he commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, and so I guess he knew something of what he'd done, in order for him to declare it shrewd. Uh, although maybe he maybe since the manager was managing the accounts, he was happy that he'd gotten something and didn't really know what the account was worth. Mm-hmm. Well, there is a, there is one possibility, and, it, and we remember, and I think we, we started with this, that at the beginning he said, "Well, if I'm going to get fired, why does the I mean, why does the manager do what he did? It's not to collect the debts; it's to do what? To right, to to help himself. And then the master says he acted shrewdly. So maybe the master is like, "Well, that was, you know, that was a really good idea. That's that's very smart." 
Well, then that the person talking in nine is is who? Jesus, right? And so Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So Jesus is, is kind of commending the shrewd manager as well, isn't he? Mm-hmm. He's like, well... It's, all right. There's also a dualism going on. There's a, there's a, there's a contract going on that I, I have no idea what's really happening here. I, this is one of the most confusing things, and I wish you hadn't. <laughs> 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 Me too. The people of light, the, the, the people of the world and the people of light, mm-hmm. Well, this is, this, this is trouble. Well, yeah. Well, let's. I don't. Let's kind of interpret it. Interpret it. Interpret it in context. So, so, so he's at dinner with the, um, with the, uh, with the Pharisees and the tax collectors. And so I think the commentators would say, well, the people of this world that he's referring to are the tax collectors, and the people and the people of the light would be the Pharisees. Okay. And so, um, so there, there's one possible reading that he's kind of uh, giving the tax collectors, de- telling the tax collectors, be nice to your fellow citizens, and that the Pharisees, you know, he's he's coming, he's he's criticizing them and saying, you know, um, your failure to to act in a forgiving way uh, is not the way to to deal with people. So that's one possibility. But it does. I think you're. I think if you go on to verse 10, the whole verse 10 through 12 seems like he seems like it's it's almost a, a contradiction of what the what the prior thing says, right? I mean, it's it's whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much, and whoever's dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And so, although he praised the dishonesty he seemed to in the prior set, he's kind of criticizing the the dishonesty there. I think he's doing it because he knows it won't work. Oh, yeah. It it won't work because what's happening is that the guy comes in and he he said, quickly write down. Which means, like, if you've got a debt and this guy's, like, trying to rush, like, just quickly write it down. We'll sign it. Something's fishy going on. So the guys who know they're getting a reduction, something is going on. So they're happy to get the reduction, but they know that the manager is being dishonest. And so the end run is, like, Yes, at some level he's endeared himself to those guys, but they're not going to hire him. Right? <laughs> they're ultimately not going to hire him because they, they're like, well, gosh, if he did it with this guy, then... Right. I mean, I do think that there, the, the one thing that can be said about the dishonest manager that is praiseworthy is he understands the gratuitous gracefulness of the, of the landowner. Now he takes advantage of it. He takes advantage of it, but at the same time, he he, under, he at least understands the nature of the the man in the big house. So. Well, that's a, I mean that's a that's a, it's interesting because in the beginning, um, the the uh, owner is firing him because he. Uh, wasn't a very good manager, right? I mean, he's he's not being the man. The owner is not being very forgiving of the manager 
at the beginning, but he seems to have a change of heart at the end um, after he sees what happens. Well, so I'll just tell you what, what, what Capon does with this. I don't think he, he doesn't try to reconcile it. What he says is, really, these are two different things, that this part should not be included in there. So let's just chop that off. That's something else. And then let's just focus on what happens in verse 1 through 9. Uh, so I, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's the right way to do it or not. It's, a, it's an interpretive thing, but it does seem that this, this parable, if you, if you chop it off at nine, I think you can make a case that it's, it's of a piece with the other, with the, the lost son, lost coin, lost sheep aspect of it, because uh, it's really it, Jesus is basically saying that this, this whole idea of settling your accounts of um, people being held to account for their debts is gone. I'm doing away with it. And the people who are who enter into that kind of relationship, who, who die to their debtors, who forgive their debts, are the people who uh, will be commended. And I think it, using the dishonesty is not necessarily a criticism. Just like saying it's it's unjust is not necessarily a criticism. It's just a description of, of, of in fact, the operation of grace, which is, it's extremely unjust. If we were to if we were to be held account for ourselves, then we would be in trouble. Um, well, no, I think. Right. Well, it's, but it does. But it, it's also, I mean, it's 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 part. And well, you're right, actually, because in his book he says one through eight. He says. I use nine on alternate months about whether I can't decide whether it's part of it or not. But it's it's, it's <laughs> but it's it's again the idea of, of, of rejecting this idea of, of accounting and everything else. It's it, it's entering into this paradigm of, of free grace, free wealth. I you know not holding on to your material possessions, but putting them out into the world. And I think it does bleed over into into a sort of of self help. Which is the um, uh, it, it makes it it makes this parable a little bit difficult to stomach, uh, which is why I guess it's the hardest parable. Yeah. Do any other I don't know if you did this or not, in front of you, but do any other translations the, the phrase to gain friends? Are there any other translations of that or interpretations? Of that? I don't know. Okay. Possibly. Right. You think he's saying in verse nine to just go ahead and get over what money means to you, so then you can get on to the internal values. Yeah, and I think that's and that's exactly you know it, except for for ten through twelve, you know I don't know why that keeps popping up. Once you see that you can buy friends, you see how ingenuine it can be. <laughs> so then you really know what friendship is. Right. When you can't buy them anymore. Right, and that actually that well see well, first thing this this last verse seems to go back to seems to repeat exactly that idea which is, um, you know. Well, not not quite that idea, but if you hate money, uh, you can't serve God and money, so you need to hate money in order to love God. It kind of comes back to that idea. But this, but the idea of, of whether you can you can use money to buy friends, I think is um, is a good one uh, because and we talked a little bit about this uh, in the prodigal son class. But this the idea of of overgiving, which is the idea you know to and 
I told the story there, and I guess I'll repeat it again. But Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote the Eat, Pray, Love book, wrote an article about this where she says, you know, after she made all this money in the book, she started doing all these nice things for her friends. She would buy them things and take them to dinner and things like that, thinking that, you know, if she had it, no big deal. I don't need it anyway. And, um, you know, she thought that her friends wouldn't care or that they would, in fact, you know, appreciate what she was doing and what, in fact, happened. All her friends began to not want to hang out with her anymore because they felt she's, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but they they sort of they they were like, well, you know, I don't like. It. They felt this kind of judgment on them because they couldn't reciprocate the gift that she'd given them. That they they felt like they couldn't pay her back. They couldn't take her out to dinner and pay for it because they didn't have the money. Don't you think Michael was saying? I mean, that what he's saying in dealing with with the Pharisees is that. Gosh, even the world has a notion of forgiveness and grace, even if it's for expedient reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least mm-hmm. they get it, and you don't. <laughs> and like you ought to be, this is your business. And yet, even the shrewd, dishonest manager understands the power of forgiveness in order to gain friends, even if it's wrapped mm-hmm. up in money. Mm-hmm. And yet. You actually hold the keys to the kingdom and understand what real forgiveness is, and yet you're incredibly stingy about offering it. Mm-hmm. There is no forgiveness. Right. Well, and that and that kind of brings it back to, to the to the Jonah story in a sense, because he was the same way. He kind of understood this idea of forgiveness and then resented it when you know Nineveh received what what he had received himself. There's, there's one other part of that is what if that was his commission? I mean, what if he was taken off? what he would have made from it, Mm -hmm. that he was really, truly forgiving it and paying it himself, Mm -hmm. so to speak. So that may have been why his his boss said that he commended him. Yeah. Well, that's that's a possibility. So if you Mm -hmm. take it in isolation without the context of the Pharisees, Mm -hmm. it it really is a horribly confusing Mm -hmm. parable. I agree. If you don't have the context of the dinner setting, the apostles, the Pharisees, and then the tax collectors, you don't have your characters in place. Mm-hmm. You could walk out of this with a very different gospel. Right. Well, and that goes back to the to to the idea I said earlier. You know, it, sometimes you have to be there to understand the joke. Right. I mean, it's. If you don't have the context for, for this, and it was it was similar with with the prodigal son and the idea of inheritance, without the context, it's kind of hard to really understand what these parables are. And and I think the the purpose of them is, of course, you know, whenever you're arguing, you use the analogy. You you kind of use things that people that are around you understand and kind of compare it to it and make them so they'll have a better understanding of of more complicated things. And I think it is difficult just to to kind of read it and say, all right, this is this is what it means. Right. I think if someone didn't someone do the unjust judge? Or someone's going to? I think someone's going to do it at some point, so um, if they haven't done it already. Alright, so so anyway, quick story to kinda um, get you out of your, your confusion. Um and this month's, actually August 2013, Esquire magazine. Well, I didn't realize what was on the back. So. Esquire, yeah, oh yeah, totally. So Esquire magazine, Matt Damon on the front, 
And there's a good there's a good argue, article in there on is heaven a scam, which you might want to check out from the uh, about the proof of heaven author. But anyway, the the interview of Matt Damon, who is obviously uh, according to Esquire, one of the one of the top three most famous people in the world. He tells a story that I think um, uh, kind of comes into this last idea of, of using worldly wealth to gain friends, which I wanted to read you real quick, uh, and then show you an entertaining clip from Louis C.K. We're kind of running out of time, so I'll hurry. So this is a story Matt Damon says about, tells about Bono. One day, Bono, you know who Bono is. He's the lead singer of U2. All right. So one day, Bono flew into Liverpool, and Paul McCartney was supposed to pick him up at the airport. You know who Paul McCartney is. Yes, okay. Yeah. Uh, and Bono was shocked when Paul picked him up at the airport alone behind the wheel of his car. Would you like to go on a little tour, Paul said? Sure, Bono said, because Bono is a fan of the Beatles in the same way that Damon is a fan of Bono. Uh, Bono is obsessed with the Beatles, Damon said at the table in the lobby of the gated hotel in a little town in Germany. He's like a student of the Beatles. He's read every book on the Beatles. He's seen every bit of film. There's nothing he doesn't know. So when Paul stops and says, that's where it happened, that's where it happened. Bono's like, that's where what happened? Because he thinks he knows everything. And Paul says, that's where the Beatles started. That's where John, John Lennon, <laughs> that's where John gave me half his chocolate bar. And now Bono's like, what chocolate bar? I've never heard of any chocolate bar. And Paul says, John had a chocolate bar and he shared it with me. And he didn't give me some of his chocolate bar. He didn't give me a square of his chocolate bar. He didn't give me a quarter of his chocolate bar. He gave me half of his chocolate bar. And that is why the Beatles started right there. So anyway, I thought that was that was more of a modern kind of twist on the shrewd manager. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And so so as a contrast to that, I wanted to play a quick clip from Louis C.K. so you all feel entertained at the end. And this is, this is actually following on to the uh, discussion last week of how boring it is having kids with Clifford the Big Red Dog. If anyone needs to leave, go ahead. I won't get offended. But. And there are actually no curse words in this. So. Boring having kids. You've got to play kid games. You've got to play board games. Little kid board games. <coughs> you got a six, honey. Everything you have. <laughs> all the railroads, your houses, all your money. 
anymore, see, because <laughs> you've given me all of that, it doesn't even touch how much you owe me. <laughs> it doesn't even touch it, baby. You're going down hard. It's really bad. <laughs> all you've been working for all day, I'm going to take it now, and I'm going to use it to destroy the <laughs> Thank you.